uh, this morning. Uh, but first, I want to uh, thank you for coming today and thank you for worshiping with us. Uh, uh, this morning, we're going to be kicking off uh, a series that I'm planning on uh, taking us through the end of the school year uh, next spring called A Journey Through the Bible. And um, I've posted some information about that on our website, and uh, you can also uh, read the, the pastor's pen in today's bulletin. It'll just take you a, less than a minute to read that, and you'll get a little glimpse of what I'm trying to do. But basically what I'd like to do is to help us see the unity of the Bible as a story. That is that the Bible's a lot of things, but the thing that it is uh, most, I would say, it, it, it is the story of what God is doing in the world, his plan and his purposes uh, for uh, creation. And so uh, I think this, uh, this series, what it's going to do is it's going to help make sense of the Bible as a whole. I think it's going to help you to fit the, get the Bible together, even the parts that are kind of weird and that you kind of like don't understand. I think it's going to help it make a whole lot more sense. I think it's going to help you see how the Bible, every part of the Bible is relevant for your life from... Um, uh, the book of Leviticus, to the Proverbs, to the book of Revelation. And I think when you see how the Bible fits together in all its beauty, I think it will astound you, if you haven't seen it before, of how the Bible, despite the fact that it's a collection of ancient documents written over a period of thousands of years that contains history, poetry, uh, prose, uh, apocalyptic literature, and letters written, it all tells one story. And I think you'll be amazed when you see it. But <clears throat> every story has a beginning, and that's where we're going to start. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Now, Genesis 1 is in the Bible. It's here, not just because it is the beginning of the story, but because the beginning of the story tells us so much about everything else. If you, have tried, if you tried to watch any movie halfway through, you, most of the time you're lost. To really understand the context of the story, some of the, mo the most important part is to know the beginning. And the Bible, as I said, is telling a story. And the story that you believe that you are part of is your worldview. In other words, everybody has a story that they believe that you're part of. You have a story that you believe that you're part of, which is the reason which enables you to even live your life. Okay? And people have proposed many different stories throughout the history of the world. You know, uh, Karl Marx uh, proposed the story of class war, that the whole world is explainable in terms of oppressor and, and oppressed, of one class oppressing the other. Uh, Hindu, Hinduism has a story of, of, uh, of karma. And, and uh, what goes around comes around, and we live on a big wheel and a big cycle of life. And if you don't do it right this time, you're going to come back as a roach. And if, you don't, and if you do it better the next time, you're going to come back as a cow. Well, the story that you believe that you're living in affects how you live. And let me tell you something. All the different stories in the world, they can't all be true. It's impossible. It's contradictory. And the Bible is giving us a specific story, and I believe that if you firmly plant yourself in this story, first of all, you'll be living in reality. And second of all, you'll find what you were made for. So we all have a worldview. We all have different lenses. 
And if your lenses are yellow and my lenses are blue, then we could argue about the color of something all day and not gain any ground. The question is, though, what is reality? What is the story in which we are truly planted? And that's what I want to talk about to, over this year. And, that, and we see the beginning of this story in Genesis chapter 1. So if you have a Bible and you're able and willing, uh, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Um, we're going to read, we're not going to read all of it, but I'm uh, going to read just enough and, and hopefully uh, you can, we can fill in the gaps. So first I'm going to read in verse 1 through 8, and then we're going to jump to verse 26. Scripture says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and in the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And then he goes on to explain the rest of the days of creation. And then in verse 26 it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. The word of God may be seated. There's three things that I want us to see from this text this morning. The pre-existence of God, the power of God, and the purpose of God. The pre-existence of God, the power of God, and the purpose of God first. The pre-existence of God. I just want you to think about this, contemplate this a little bit. Because... Nothing in the scripture is there by accident, and, and the writer is clearly wanting to give us context of, of how the world is. Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. Why don't you think about for a moment, what does that mean? In the beginning, God. In the beginning of what? Well, clearly he means in the beginning of everything. Because he goes on to say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That means that in the beginning of everything, before anything else came to exist, God was already there. What does that mean? It means everything had a beginning except God. God has no beginning. 
God has always existed. That is that before the universe existed, before time existed, before space existed, before matter existed, before energy existed, before gravity existed, before anything that we anything that we could possibly know and understand existed in a way and in a form and in a realm that is beyond our comprehension, God existed. And he was there and he has always been there. Holy, holy, holy. Outside of time and space, utterly unique, incomparable to anything else that exists, there is God and there is nothing and no one like him. That's what the Bible teaches. Isaiah 45, verse 18. For thus says the Lord... Who created the heavens, he is God. Who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Isaiah 40, verse 25 and 26. To whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, talking about the stars, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. This is the God that we are talking about. I want to, I want to read this quote to you from Charles Spurgeon, and, and Charles Spurgeon says it in a way that only he can. And this is what he says, considering the pre-existence of God. He says, if it were within the range of human capacity to conceive of a time when God dwelt alone without his creatures, we should then have one of the grandest and most stupendous ideas of God. There was a season when as yet the sun had never run his race, nor commenced flinging his golden rays across space to gladden the earth. There was an era when no stars sparkled in the firmament, for there was no sea of azure in which they might float. There was a time when all that we now behold of God's great universe was yet unborn, slumbering within the mind of God, as yet uncreated and non-existent. Yet there was God, and he was overall blessed forever. Though no seraphs hymned his praises, though no strong-winged cherubs flashed like lightning to do his high behest, though he was without a retinue, yet he sat as a king on his throne, the mighty God forever to be worshipped, the dread supreme in solemn silence dwelling by himself in vast immensity, making the placid clouds his canopy and the light from his own countenance forming the brightness of his glory. God was and God is. From beginning, God was God. Ere worlds had beginning, he was from everlasting to everlasting. Spurgeon was right. If we could conceive as a time when God existed before anything else did, we would have the most stupendous idea about God. What we are discussing here stretches the very boundaries of our capacity to fathom. God is... God stands outside of creation itself. He is so utterly and unlike anything and everything else that he exists on a different plane of existence, a different plane of transcendence. 
Why do you think God said, you shall not make any carved image, you shall not make any image of me? He is not, he's not just forbidding idolatry of other gods. He is forbidding creating something as an image of him to worship him through that image. Why? Because there is nothing in the created order that could even begin to express God and to try to limit him to any type of finite visual picture is to, is to uh, uh, blaspheme him because he is so utterly unique and unlike anything else in all creation. I want you to think about this for a second. Consider that, uh, you know, you're back in, in school and uh, you're in art class and you're, you're drawing a picture of some people and your, your, your skills are highly advanced like mine. And, um, and you draw the most uh, awe-inspiring stick figure portrait you've ever seen, okay? And you draw this stick figure portrait and you have some people, some people on there. Now, I want you just to imagine for a second. Think about, think about those people on the page that you just drew. Can those stick figures, can they fathom you? Can they comprehend you? Can, can Hamlet comprehend William Shakespeare? God is higher above us than we are above a portrait we draw on a page. And we try to wrap him around, we try to wrap our minds around him, and we just can't. He is on a different level, a different plane of existence, of transcendence. We can, we can't, we can hardly even fathom him, much less comprehend him. So, so, so we have to think about some implications about this. Because this, I believe, makes God a lot bigger a lot bigger than most of us are comfortable with. If you draw a picture and you decide you wanted to change something in that picture, what do you do? You get out an eraser and erase it. Did you do that, did you do that figure any wrong by taking them out of your picture? No, you drew them. You can do whatever you want. Have you ever considered the fact that God is so great that he can do whatever he wants? Even things that you don't like, if he wants to do them? Is your God that big? See, so many people today, they say, well, I don't want to believe in God because they read the Bible and they see things God doesn't like. Well, you have to read the Bible correctly, first of all. But second of all, yes, the reason you don't like God is because he can do things to you that you don't like and you have to deal with it. And faith, faith is understanding that God is who he is. And he's, he is for his people in Jesus Christ. But listen, he's in control. And he's going to do what he wants. And the, the heart of faith is the heart that finally comes down and says, God, I submit to your will in my life. You see it? A person who is finally is willing to humble themselves and say, God, I don't understand but I trust. I don't always understand, but you can do what you want, and who am I to say otherwise, and I trust in you. That's the heart of faith. Because think about it. If God is what we are talking about, how can we lift up our eyes an ant on an anthill and say, what are you doing? We can't. In fact, the scripture says this 
in several places. Isaiah 29, 16. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing should say to its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed of, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Psalm four, Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask of me things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. This is God. This is God. But the glory of this is that this God who is unsearchable and indescribable is for us in Jesus Christ. So we see then the glory of the preexistence of God. Secondly, let us see the power of God. The power of God. Look again in verse 3, Genesis 1. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So, I want, so in the same way we see astounding things about the preexistence of God, we see uh, similarly in the power of God. Now, just think, about, just think about what these simple verses here in the very beginning of the Bible already what they tell us about God, the, the authority of God. For God speaking is acting. When God says something, it happens. I cannot, I cannot just stand out in my yard and say, let there be mowed grass. <laughs> Doesn't work that way, believe me. <laughs> believe me. If I want mowed grass, I have to forcibly coerce the grass into my will. Nothing resists God's will. Nothing resists God's will. God has the power to speak, and when he speaks, things happen. The closest analogy I think that we have of this is the way that we control our own body. When I, when I want to lift up my hand, I will it, and it happens. That's the closest thing that we have. I'm not thinking, I'm not thinking okay, muscles move. I just will my hand to raise, and it raises. But the thing is, is, guess what? I don't even have total control over my body because my body breaks, and I don't even have control over it. But when God wills something to happen, it happens. When God speaks into nothing, it becomes everything at his word. 
When God says, let there be light, he wills it and light blasts forth into the darkness. It's astounding. The authority of God, the power of God, that even the nothing obeys his will when he commands it to. You remember the story of Jesus when he's in the boat with his disciples and this terrible storm rises up and uh, these huge churning waves. I mean, if you've ever been in a bad storm on a boat, <laughs> it's not pleasant. And it's, it's, I mean, it's terrifying because you're, you're, at, you're at its mercy. There's nothing you can do about it. It is, it is a force and a power that you are helpless against. And they're terrified. And Jesus is asleep. And they wake him up. And they say, you know, don't, don't you care? We're here. We're, we're about to perish. And what does Jesus do? One phrase. Peace be still. And then in the midst of the roaring waves and the tempestuous winds, the waves that are high just sink down into a flat, rippleless calm. And then you know what the Bible says? In Mark, it says literally, they feared a great fear. In other words, they were terrified. Why? At the storm? No. At Jesus. Why? I've read that before and I think, why were they terrified at Jesus? But think about it. It actually makes perfect sense. Let me give you a, an analogy. Consider you're, you're walking down downtown Metropolis with Clark Kent. Uh, just for clarity's sake, Metropolis is where Superman lives, and Clark Kent is Superman's alias, okay? Imagine you're walking down downtown Metropolis with Clark Kent. All you know, he is a normal reporter with glasses that works at the Daily Planet. That's all you know. And then all of a sudden, a giant skyscraper begins to fall on top of y'all. And then all of a sudden, your friend bur- bursts off the ground picks up the building like it's nothing, sets it back in place, welds it back together with his laser eyes, and then lands right beside you and keeps on walking. You would be terrified. Not at the building, at who you're in the presence of. Who is this man who has such power that he could wipe out everyone if he wanted to, and we could do nothing about it? And yet here, and here we are going to get a club sandwich. And now imagine you're one of Jesus' disciples, and this storm is raging so powerfully and so uh, uncontrollably, and he speaks. And then there's not even a breeze, not even a ripple in the water. And they said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Jesus is not to be trifled with. We, we, so many times we think of Jesus as like a blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy holding a little lamb. But the Bible says one day he's going to come back riding a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth to strike down the nations. 
God is powerful. God speaks and light and energy and matter burst into existence. His word is the spark that ignited every star. God took lifeless, inert matter and breathed into it the breath of life. I've been reading about this. The human body is so incredibly complex that, in my view, it's utterly unfathomable to think it could have happened on its own. Your mind is a biological supercomputer, the complexity of which we can't even approach. Scientists can't even create the simplest cell. You know, if they ever did, all it would prove is that it takes great intelligence to make a cell. The simplest cells have complex, coded, not not regular pattern, but specific information. Your Your DNA has its own language coded into it that your cells decode so they know how to build the building blocks of the cells. I'm telling you. And the, the created order in the, the cosmos itself that exists is, has such a fine degree of the, 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 uh, the constants that govern the physical laws are such to the precise degree that make it allowable for human life to exist that it's, it's unbelievable. And God is standing all over, outside, over and against his creation and over, and over against the complexity that's in every life, and he looks over it, and he is declaring, Behold, it is very good. God is powerful. God is powerful. And so, the takeaway from this morning is to just begin, just begin to try to grasp the God that the Bible is talking about. Because when you see God in this way, the rest of the Bible makes a whole lot more sense. The problem is is that a lot of people come to God and they just think that he is a little bit bigger, a little bit smarter version of themselves, And that when God does something that they don't like, well, who's God to do that? I'll tell you who. He's God. And you're not. When you're God, you can do whatever you want to. But until that happens, God is God. The bet, one of the greatest images of this is the book of Job. Job is a righteous man. And, um, and from the human perspective, he endures great unexplainable suffering. And he wants to plead his case before the Lord. And the Lord even says he's righteous in doing so. We can and we should plead our case before the Lord. But at the end of the day... And at the end of the book of Job, in spite of all Job's Job's questions, God answers him. But you know how God answers him? With questions. In other words, in other words, what God what is God telling Job? You know what God's telling Job? I don't owe you any answers. I can give you answers, and sometimes I will, but I don't owe you any answers. I am God, and there are things that even if I tried to explain them to you, you couldn't understand them. And I have plans, and I have purposes that you couldn't even begin to wrap your head around. How does God answer Job in the midst of all his questions? Job 38-2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. 
Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since the days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. What is Job's reply to him? Job 42.2 I know that you can do all things. And no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard by the hearing of the ear. But now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust in other words God is patient and God is kind and God is merciful but there is a point that all of us have to reach in our lives where we are willing to humble ourselves enough before this great and majestic God and say there are things that I can't understand not thy will not my will be done but thy will be done this is astounding It's astounding. We see the pre-existence of God and the power of God. And finally, we see the purpose of God. The purpose of God. Verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The purpose of God. So, if you've been following what we've been talking about so far, you'll understand that God doesn't need us. God is independent. He is self-sufficient. So it begs the question then, why did God create in the first place? He didn't have to. He didn't need us. But why then did God create in the first place? He had to have some purpose. And we know this too from the fact that God is an intelligent being. We create for purpose. We don't create for no purpose. And so, what we see here, and this is, this is what's so incredible, 
is that when we read the Genesis 1 account, you get all the way to this, to this, to verse 26, and you see that God created everything and that he is a God that is unchallengeable, and yet we get to verse 26, and we see that it's, it's clear. There is something special about man. There is nothing else in all the, the other verses that set aside and spend so much time talking about a specific aspect of creation, but yet when we get to man, it slows down and speaks differently about man than anything else in all of creation. That is, there is something unique about man. So, despite of the fact that we are nothing before God, yet God has chosen to create the world in such a way to be a theater of, dis- a theater of human history to display his glory. In other words, we are nothing, but because God has so created the world the way he has, he has given us great honor as unique in all of his creation. That we are made in God's image and nothing else in all creation is made in the image of God. The question is, what does it mean that we are made in God's image? Now, this has been a matter of huge debate pretty much the entire uh, church age. And people have posited different things. But I think, I think recent scholarship and the context of the passage shows us that what an image did in the ancient Near East, which is the context in which Genesis was written, an image represented the authority of a king. In fact, we actually know this from the Bible. In Nebuchadnezzar, when he made the the giant golden image and commanded everyone to worship it. Why would he do that? Because worshiping the image that he set up in his image is worshiping him. You see? The image was a representation of who he was, and and bowing down to the image represented submission, not to the image itself, but to the one whose image it was. You see? What does that mean about us? (laughs) It means that God has made us in his image such that we are bearers of God's own authority. And this makes perfect sense in the context because what is the effect of us being made made in God's image? What does it say? Have dominion. What does that mean? Reign. We were made to reign. We were made by God to be kings and queens of the earth. Why? Not so that we're great, but so that wherever the cosmos and the created order and angels saw that man was, they would say, God reigns there. Why? Because we are in God's image. You see it? You see the high calling that we were made to have? That when God said, I have made you in my image, and I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, he is saying that I want you to take my authority, I want you to take my glory, and I want you to spread it over all the earth so all the earth knows that I reign here. We were made to be kings and lords underneath the king of kings and the lord of lords. We were made for glory, sharing in the glory of our God. So when you, when you understand it in that way, 
then think about what sin means. The very authority that you were supposed to represent and show forth in the world, you rebel against. By submission to God's authority and going forth and reigning on his good behalf in the whole world, you are to show his good and perfect authority. And when we sin against God, we rebel against the very authority that God was trying to give us as a gift. In other words, we are doing the exact opposite of what we were made to do. That's what sin is. We lost something in the garden, and we're going to talk about that next week. We were made to display the glory of God to the ends of the earth. But as you all know, we fell. So God's plan, and I would suggest the whole story of the Bible, is God restoring us to the glory he made us to have. Think about it. We were made in God's image, but that image is deeply marred because of sin. But you know what the Bible says of Jesus Christ? You know what it says? 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, the God of the world has blinded the mind of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? It means Jesus is the human that we were supposed to be. And he came and did what Adam failed in doing. He perfectly submitted to God's authority. He perfectly came onto the earth to show what it is like to submit to God, to love God, to serve him, to rule as his king. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says that as we behold the glory of the Lord, as we behold the glory of Jesus Christ, it says we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. You see it? In Jesus Christ, God is restoring us back to who we were made to be. Kings. And queens under the king of kings and the lord of lords. That's your story. That's your story. So do you understand what this means for us, for our life? As I've said before, we go about from day to day. Just going on, we, we live in normal lives. We don't think much about our life. We, we don't, you know, and sometimes we're just tempted to think, oh, I'm just worthless, I'm nothing. And the Bible says, you were made to reign. Did you, you know what Paul says about the saints? He says, he, he critiques, I think it's the Corinthians, because they're just living licentiously, living however they want, and he can't understand because they don't understand the story that they're in. He said, don't you know you're supposed to judge angels? And you're living like your life doesn't matter. 
And one day we're going to judge angels. That's the story that we're living in. And that story only comes to its height and you will only be restored back to the height for which you were made and granted as a gift by God only through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so if there's anyone in this room this morning who doesn't know Jesus Christ, you, don't, you haven't yet embraced the story that you are a part of. You can today. You can have the sure hope that you will be restored to the glory under God, under Jesus Christ that you were made for. If you turn from your sin, turn from the fleeting things that don't matter so you can finally get back to the thing that you were made for, to bear the very glory of God himself, to bear the image once again of God, to be his king and his queen in the earth under him, under his rule. I invite you to know him today by turning from your sins and believing in Jesus Christ as Lord. We're going to sing a song of commitment in just a moment. If the Lord is speaking to you, you can come and talk to me.